Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, editor-in-chief of No Film School. I am Emily Booter, managing editor. I'm John Fusco, producer. Charles Hain, tech writer. It's December 22nd, 2016. And on this week's show, we'll bring you all the best of indie film from 2016. From our top camera choices, to our favorite movies, to the best things we learned about filmmaking, from a year in the life of the world's biggest online film community, No Film School. This week's show, which is the final Indie Film Weekly of 2016, and as always, we're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So, 2016. It's been kind of a tough year. Here in the U.S., we had a very contentious presidential race that dominated the news and stirred up a lot of feelings. Both here and abroad, we had widespread violence and political turmoil, And in the film world, as I was reminded when I edited our end-of-year memorial post earlier this week, we lost some real greats from musicians who contributed a ton to movies like Prince, David Bowie, and Leonard Cohen, to influential directors like Abbas Kurastami, and DPs like Haskell Wexler, who shot One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But all that being said, I think we all believe here at Indie Film Weekly that independent film thrives when the going gets tough, and it was an amazing year for indies. Here at No Film School, we saw lots of great movies, interviewed so many fascinating people from all parts of filmmaking, and learned a ton in the process. So today, we're going to share the best of it with you, starting with this podcast team's favorite films of the year. Who wants to start? Emily. Oh, I've been nominated. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, stepping up to the podium, I will let you know that my favorite movie of the year I saw at a press screening theater in Times Square, and when I walked outside, I could barely understand where I was. I couldn't fathom my surroundings, and I was in a complete daze. This movie is Embrace of the Serpent. It's Ciro Guerra's spellbinding Colombian film, which was actually nominated for an Oscar last year, but was theatrically released this year. It was shot in black and white, on film no less, and it's a meditative journey into the Amazon, told through two separate accounts separated by three decades. The first account begins in 1909 when a Dutch explorer seeks a very rare plant called the Yacruna leaf, which he wants to use to cure his unknown illness. Now, it's kind of similar to ayahuasca. It supposedly exists among an isolated tribe deep in the Amazon, and he finds a shaman named Karamakate to lead him to the elusive plant. Thirty years later is a parallel storyline with an ethnobotanist embarking on the exact same journey, and the scientist enlists Karamakate as his guide. But he's a changed man. Now he's the last survivor of his tribe, and he's wary of the genocidal and greedy white men who have decimated his livelihood, his culture, and the jungle at large. What's fascinating about this film is that it's at once an indictment of colonialism and a complex, riveting character study that serves as a a portal into lost worlds. Everything in the film works to help us enter Karamakate's perspective, even the way the timeline is structured— Like his tribe's concept of time, the narrative flows between both journeys, past and present, and the current moment takes no precedence over memories. As we experience Karamakate's astounding reverence for the natural world, his generosity and devotion to human life, and his non-materialistic value system, we're invited to wonder, irrespective of technology, is this tribal culture more advanced than our own culture? There are some incredible standout scenes, such as an Apocalypse Now moment at a Roman Catholic mission where a priest goes insane and begins to murder indigenous children. The entire film plays like a myth. It's sort of trance-like, hallucinatory, and mesmerizing. And perhaps best of all, 
There are a whopping nine languages spoken in the movie, and the director consulted on the script with surviving members of the tribe for authenticity. Holy cow. Holy snake. (laughs) So that's your favorite movie. Interestingly, not the only film shot in black and white this year that made it onto one of our top 10 lists. Charles, what about you? So it was a really tough call for me. I would almost have said Moonlight because I couldn't stop thinking about Moonlight for like the month after I saw it. And I still kind of think about Moonlight every day. But in the end, I had to go with uh, Don't Think Twice. It is almost the cliche of an indie movie from the 90s. Like, it's about a group of New Yorkers who are struggling artists, who are navigating relationships and ambition and some people becoming more successful. And yet, despite all of those things that could have made it cliche, it is so, like, well-observed, does such a good job of legitimately humanizing characters and does a great job of, like, capturing the elusive nature of improv and letting it be elusive. Like, knowing that it's probably not as funny in the movie as it would have been in the room and and embracing that and letting it be that I, w- I just walked out of that movie like, yeah, yeah, you could not have done that movie any better. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's why in the end, Don't Think Twice was the top movie of the year for me. Yeah, and while it may seem like it's sort of locked into the 90s sort of movie style, it just says such a good job of actually representing what the improv scene is like today in New York City. Like... I have so many friends that do UCB and that who have run the improv circuit and it is just such a sort of vicious cycle and a lot of times there isn't very much hope for those people, Uh, no offense to my friends, but I don't know, it, it does a great job of showing sort of like the family that's built and like a whole other side of like the perks of being in an improv troupe. The community, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think for filmmakers, it's also that great reminder of like, we don't make movies to get a studio deal. You don't do improv to get on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Like, you have to make movies because you like it. You have to do improv because you like it. You like the process. Yeah, whether you're doing it in a former strip club in Philadelphia or on Saturday Night Live or what do they call that weekend live in yeah. the movie? <laughs> like, like, we make movies because we make movies. What I love about these lists that we're doing too is that this movie, Don't Think Twice, couldn't be more different in its description than the movie Emily chose Somebody's oh, yeah. the Serpent. It's colonialism, amazing. what? They're both Definitely about things. colonialism. I don't know. Um, and just uh, for those of you that don't know about the film, it's Mike Birbiglia is the director and Ira Glass is the producer. We actually have an interview with the two of them together that our writer Micah Van Hove, who also loved the movie, did earlier this year at South by Southwest. I'm going to say that my favorite film is The Daniels' Swiss Army Man. I'm a huge fan of The Daniels. I think they're equally the most refreshing and most boundary-pushing directors out there today. I described the difference between what good weird movies and bad weird movies are in our end-of-the-year blurbs and also mentioned how this was a year that, because I got to go to a lot of festivals, I ended up seeing a lot of bad weird movies. Bad weird movies can be defined as being weird just for the sake of being weird, while good weird movies can be defined as being weird for the sake of justifying a larger theme of the movie. So that's what Swiss Army Man does so well. Sure, it's got a lot of farts and boners, but all those farts and boners support something much greater, and that's heart. So farts <laughs> and boners. Hearts, farts, supporting boners. Heart. And just like Daniel's seriously. Story. Yes. So like talking about I mean, you can see just like from us talking <laughs> about our famous like our favorite movies, it's hard to like take that seriously, but they do such an incredible job of forcing the audience to take their thematic material seriously. 
Anyways, my journey with this film started all the way back in Sundance, where I'd heard that the guys who made the Turndown for What music video had made a full-length feature film. It had this insane premise about a man who was stuck on a desert island who found a farting corpse that would help him to find his way back home. Then I heard that there were mass walkouts at some of the screenings. Then I heard that Daniels won the Best Director Award at Sundance. And then I heard that A24 was picking it up for distribution. Clearly, it quickly became my most anticipated movie of the year. I love divisive films that force people to push themselves out of their comfort zone, and what that ultimately does is make the takeaway or the catharsis from the film that much more effective. I finally saw the movie at the Dolby Atmos-equipped Dolby 88 Theater in June, which, if you've heard the soundtrack, was such a treat to see in a 3D sound environment, and the whole film just exceeded any of my expectations, which were clearly a lot. I'd heard it was a movie that was just about farts and boners, and while it was, it gave us so much more and was so relatable and clever and funny and tragic. It's like Daniel Shiner told me in an interview I conducted back in July. I think that's one of the things we're most proud of about the movie. The premise is crazy and silly sounding, but no matter how much it gets spoiled for people, they seem to still be surprised when they walk in and see it. Even with all its weirdness and its gags, it was something that demanded audiences to take it seriously, which is a key ingredient to Daniel's success. Daniel Kwan explained further that one of the gifts that they realized when they came up with Swiss Army Man was that by, quote, making a movie about a farting corpse, we now had an uphill battle to get people to like it. It gives us permission to just go for broke. We got to put in the most immersive, fun, in-your-face music we could possibly muster. We got to put action scenes in and do crazy visuals and feel we're not throwing un- anything unnecessary into the movie. They're necessary. We need to go this hard because we're fighting the farting corpse battle. We're fighting to fight back the haters that will inevitably appear. So regarding the work of the Daniels, suffice to say, whatever you're expecting, there's no way you'll be prepared. And that's something that I promise will continue to be the most exciting aspect of filmmaking for me for the rest of my life. And that is why The Daniel Swiss Army Man is the best movie of the year. I have a very serious not farting corpse question. Um, so what is it that makes you take this movie seriously, if not all of the gags? It's the... So have you, have you seen it? Have not. Well... I'm not sure I really want to spoil what the sort of dramatic moments of the film are, but they're very intense and not funny. (laughs) Um, The things that the main character is dealing with, uh, mental health being a huge one of them, this is how he has to deal with his own issues. So the way that Daniels sort of put visual imagery to explain how a person this mentally screwed up has to deal with life is funny in the way they did it, but in reality, it's pretty heartbreaking. So back to our theme from earlier about how diverse these films are, mine is completely on the other side of the world from The Farting Corpse movie, it sounds um, like. And like John, well, I've been to lots and lots and lots of film festivals, but... Similar to John, I've probably seen more films this year than any other year of my life. Um, And there was one that I just kept coming back to as a favorite, even though it's not really the most likely choice, especially given that it premiered in the kids section at Sundance. And that movie is The Eagle Huntress, directed by Otto Bell. It's just so good. And it's not like good for a doc or good for a first feature or good for a family film, although those are all categories that it falls into. It's just a wonderful, gorgeously shot movie with an inspiring story. Um, that story is basically, it's, its protagonist is a charming, 
13-year-old Mongolian girl who's determined to learn the dangerous art of hunting game with eagles in the frozen wilderness despite the objections of community elders who've never allowed a female eagle hunter to join their ranks. And this has been going on for 12 generations. Now, her father, who himself is a champion eagle hunter, agrees to train her. And from there, it's just a wild ride. Both the soaring nature scenes and the intimate personal moments are equally beautiful to look at, which becomes even better when you learn that what looks like a high-budget production was undertaken by a tiny but inventive and dedicated crew. We did a podcast with one of its shooters, Martina Radwan, and another with Otto Bell and producer Stacey Reese, along with a written interview with Bell. And all of them include pretty amazing behind-the-scenes stories of how they got this thing made, like schlepping 1,500 pounds of gear into the mountains between only three people, and then trying to get it not to freeze when they were shooting. It's just amazing, and one of the few films I can think of that can be pretty much universally enjoyed by young, old, different cultures— Yeah, it's a winner. And we are putting all of these films, along with the favorites of a whole slew of No Film School writers, in an end-of-the-year roundup post. So just to give you guys a little more of a hint of that, Charles is not the only one who loved Moonlight. It's good that you didn't choose it, Charles, because two of our other writers uh, chose it as their top film. We also have on the list... Kirsten Johnson's camera person, and actually an outlier choice, the documentary Raving Iran by Suzanne Regina Mures. I haven't even heard of that. Oh, you're going to have to read the post. I've never even seen Moonlight. Oh, John. Oh, John. (laughs) Now, of course, we all love movies here. It's what we're all about. But uh, we can't make them without cameras, and that is one of the ongoing hottest topics on No Film School. And on this show, our, our best top-listened-to podcasts of the year all have centered around camera questions. Oh, I thought you were going to say making movies without cameras. Yeah, and actually naked people, too. <laughs> and farts. Yep. Um, well, now farts. Not not before, but I'm sure that now people are going to be have a call to action. The Wait, discourse has forever changed. Wait a minute. People like stories about naked people on the internet? That's like a thing? That's crazy. I thought, you know, putting a, putting the word naked in the title wasn't going to get anyone to listen, but apparently, you know. You guys are straight up ruining my segue. <laughs> 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 but what I'm trying to say is we also have some picks for Top Gear, and for that I'm going to turn it over to our top tech writer, Charles Hain. Who oh. is naked in the corner? the naked reviewer here with the naked truth about cameras the naked Uh, gear guy so we have a post on all of the biggest uh, camera and lighting and post tools coming up Uh, actually the camera post is already up but uh, if we had to pick one camera this year it's gotta be the red helium I know I know it's like it's a rental item not a purchase item it's still too expensive for most of us to buy but Red cameras tend to sell in such a volume that they're kind of just around. So while you're not going to buy one and stick it in your closet, uh, when you do that music video that you've been prepping for for like six months or you you know, you know, do the indie feature that you've been scrambling to get together, you're probably going to be able to get your hands on red equipment to do it, usually. Even in some of the smaller markets, my friends who shot a film in Afghanistan flew in a red camera and then discovered someone in Kabul owned one. So, like, they're around. And How much? Can I interrupt you? How much do those usually rent for? 
Uh, if you so don't mind me asking. The, uh, that's not, a really, not even the helium, or if is it available in rental houses yet? Well, here's the thing with Red. A lot of our like owner operators, Liz asked me this question this morning, that's why I'm pointing at Liz. Mm. A lot of it's owner operator, and the thing with Red cameras is the price drops off really quickly. Mm. So like when it first comes out, like heliums are probably going to get you like $1,500 a day right now. Mm-hmm. Within a year, $500 a day, something like that. So like, look, $500, not nothing. Mm. But if you're doing a $5,000 music video or something, you should be able to squeeze $500, $600 in the budget for that pretty easily. For sure. The reason why the helium wins is because it's the footage is really exciting. Everything we've seen out of it looks really great. Uh, 8K resolution is going to be fantastic. And also, interestingly, in the past, Red has gone to like big studio people for their launch short. Like Peter Jackson did a World War One short to launch one of their cameras. But this time they picked an indie guy. They went with Johnny Mass. Uh, who developed a relationship with Red by emailing them and asking them questions. Well, granted, and, uh, Michael Bay first did the the film with the helium this year, right? Well, I didn't see the Michael Bay film. I, I saw pictures of Michael Bay with the helium from a shoot, but the, the, the boxing one, the short one that we all saw, was by Johnny Mass. Yeah, I think it was like developed originally for Michael Bay, but then you're right, the sort of launch film was a short uh, by an indie maker. Yeah, uh, and Michael Bay's is green, which... Just putting that out there. It's it like a lime green. Makes sense for him. You know, yeah, I mean, it fits. Flashy. It's um, ninja. He's a flashy guy. Flashy. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think Red pays a lot of attention to the indie marketplace. They pay a lot of attention to the way we all use the camera, not just the way uh, Michael Bay uses a camera. Like, they build a custom for Michael Bay, but I still think they make a great tool for the rest of us, and that's why that really won the year for me. But, interestingly, this is like an insane year for lenses. It's been crazy. Um, I mean, the big ones are like the Zine Cineprimes and the Sigma Cinezooms, but then like there's two new lines for the Arri Alexa, and then there's new lenses for the Panavision DXL, and like it's just been crazy. And here's what I think happened: for the last like five years, all the indies have been out there, and we've been like taking still photo lenses and adapting them with lens adapters and putting photo rings on. And I think it took a couple of years for the manufacturers to realize that there was a market there. That, like, there were people who were taking this one tool and adapting it to something else, and they were like, oh, well, why don't we just make it straight up for them raw? And this is the year we really saw a lot of that. I mean, the winner of the pack, there's a T2 CineStyle zoom lens for under $4,000 from Sigma that shoots really pretty images and has smooth movement and the right uh, gear pitch for focus our zoom control. It's available in, like, five different lens mounts, although the PM mounts aren't available for another six months. But... It's it's amazing. And yes, it's not perfectly parfocal. I will say that before the commenters get to it. But you can always do touch to zoom on the back of your DSLR now to zoom in without physically zooming in on the lens and get focus. I don't know, it's really exciting. And five years ago, we didn't have anything like that. And now we have that from Sigma and the Canon 18-80 to that V wrote about for like $5,000 from Canon. So it's just, there's a whole fierce amount of competition in lenses. And it's uh, super exciting. We're going to have a uh, lighting and grip post and then a post tool post uh, end of year summary coming out soon. So look out for those. Interestingly, um, we were just about to, you know, earlier in the year around NAB, we were just about to declare that sort of cameras were over and it's the year for lenses and it's the year for gimbals and it's the year for accessories and time to invest in other things. Um, And then came one of the biggest camera announcements of the year, which became 
I think, our most watched video of all time and uh, one of our biggest posts of the year, which is about the Lytro cinema camera. And I thought it was definitely worth mentioning on the show. Can you kind of review that for us, Charles? Sure. I mean, first off, it's amazing that a 25-minute video is our most watched of the year. It says a lot about the attention span of our audience because internet videos usually peak when they're like eight seconds of a cat playing piano. It also says something about how fucking interesting that thing is. I mean, yeah. it's really incredible. I Just as a real quick aside here, we had our uh, new film school holiday party on Friday um, at the Mex... What's it, what's, our, what's our building called? The Mex Metropolitan Ex- Exchange the Metropolitan, Bank. Which is a very funky uh, place in Brooklyn. And uh, I was talking to some guys on the seventh floor who are in biotechnological engineering. And we started talking about like what no film school does. And then the one thing that he brought up was the Lytro camera because it's just such an exciting melding of science and art. They work on making uh, tools that will forever sort of change industries. And they say that this is something that if they're able to get it down from like the size of an entire room into something that can be brought onto like a physical set, it's going to blow things out of the water for filmmakers. I'm stoked on it. (laughs) So stepping back, what is it? So as Ryan put it in his NAB coverage, this is the camera that changes cinematography forever. Dun, dun, dun. Ah, Farting corpse. (laughs) Basically, instead of the old style of like you have a sensor and a lens, now it's a light field camera. So it still very similarly has a sensor and a lens, but it's like a 755 megapixel sensor that captures roughly 300 frames a second. And what it does is it captures a light field. So instead of just recording like the photo data, it it captures the photo data from many angles and because of triangulation where like things from two different angles, you can tell how far away something is. If you do a shot of like a big open field, it can tell like, ah, where all the things are in the field based on the angles, the lighter come, the light is coming from. Now, this is obviously a tremendous amount of data to record all of the angles of all of the light rays in the light field create massive files but what you get with those massive files is tremendous power so interestingly Lytro's actually been around for a while and they had like a little consumer camera that came out like five years ago I have one it's the image quality is terrible I totally understand why it failed but it does the same thing like you can pull the image into post and you can refocus you can say focus in the background focus in the foreground so you get all of those tools in post with the Lytro. And even better than that, it can tell the difference between distances. So instead of having to have a green screen up to composite, you can literally say composite everything beyond 20 feet. So if your actors are in, are within the 20-foot range, they're cleanly cut out from the background, and you don't even need a green screen out there. It can just be cut based on distance. So this changes the effects. This changes cinematography. This even changes like stereo 3D, which isn't a huge thing, but they still make some movies in that format because you have all the depth image recorded, so you don't even need two Lytro cameras. One Lytro camera, which admittedly is the size of a car and like not a small car, like a big car. Well, because it has so much data to store. Great files comes great power. (laughs) Um, You get like a native 3D camera. So it's going to be a while. I mean, it'll be a long while before we see this on indies. I think we'll probably see a studio movie, you know, if Ang Lee is willing to try 120 frames per second, 4K 3D, I think some studio level director will try and do a studio level production on this in the next couple of years. But it'll be really fascinating to see what you can do when you're getting, it's the next, 
area to head towards in resolution. Like at a certain point, 8K, 16K, like who cares? So Lytro is instead going like, we're not going to up numerical resolution. We're going to up like the things we record. By recording the light fields and having all the angles, we're recording more information in a different way. And that's what's so cool. In in that video, there's like a little... um test footage of the actual like Lytro camera of like a boy holding a baseball and one thing that it also allows you to do is just get like focus that is was like previously impossible to get by human means and it's something that can only be done like with this technology like a super macro focus yeah just like focus like you can literally get crystal clear focus on any single point in the light field because it has all of that data stored no matter what the composition is yeah well and also no matter what is moving like for instance if you do it normally if you try to do a shot where you're like keeping focus with a football as it moves like a human focus puller can't really keep up but in Lytro, you can just like tag it and be like, keep that thing in focus. <laughs> it's like, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's nuts. Well, thanks, Charles. My pleasure. Thanks for- Now uh, put your clothes on, please. Yeah, put your clothes on and get out of here. <laughs> well, Lytro technology is certainly something that I learned about this year for the first time. Guys, what would you say are things that you learned about this year that were particularly interesting to you? Maybe even the most interesting thing you've learned- or your favorite post or favorite interview you've ever done for No Film School. Liz, what was the most fascinating thing you learned from one of the interviews you did this year? That's such a good question because, you know, we are No Film School and we spend a lot of our time trying to learn and trying to share our learnings. And I think for me, it's sort of a balance of like what we learn and what what inspires us. And I would say I did a lot of inspiring interviews and went to some inspiring panels one of my favorites, actually, I'm stepping back. I would say, like, every once in a while, I do an interview that just, like, changes the whole way I think about filmmaking. And I had one of those this year with the Italian director Gianfranco Rossi. And it's not just because I have a weakness for charming Italians. Rossi made this film called Fire at Sea, which premiered at Berlinale, but I finally saw it at New York Film Festival. And his film was also in my contenders list for this year's favorite film, but it landed as my top cinematography choice instead. So it's not really a surprise that Rossi has an unusual take on directing because his whole film breaks the conventions of a documentary. And if those, if you don't know, I'm a documentary filmmaker, um, as I'm sure many of our listeners are. So this is an observational documentary that weaves this kind of dual narrative between a young Italian boy's coming of age and the European migrant crisis, not two things you might necessarily put together. Um, And it's framed and structured a lot more like a narrative than a doc. So in our interview, we talked a lot about what he called his anti-documentary approach. So we documentary filmmakers tend to spend a lot of our time chasing stories, trying to capture every moment with a handheld camera, And, you know, it's always this kind of panic and rush. And this is basically the opposite of what this guy does. So, like, what I learned from him about his approach is that he sets up a frame with good lighting and composition, just like you would in a narrative, and he kind of waits for the story to happen. In his words, he said, when I start a story, everything is isolated around me, and I'm only viewing it through the eyepiece. It's like a scientist with a microscope. At first, you don't see anything. And then you put your eye in the microscope, and you discover a new world there with its own worth and its own narration. So I'm like, but what if it doesn't happen? Like, you set up your camera and nothing happens. And I just kind of fell in love with what he told me, and again, kind of changed my whole framework. Um 
He said, I never have anxiety about filming everything. Most of my work is about losing things. It's not about grabbing things. I'd rather have one little special and unique thing that's happening and lose a hundred thousand other things around me. But that thing has to be the mother of all things possible. Yeah, I mean, his words really turned my feelings about how to make a documentary upside down. And I don't know if that's much as much a specific learning as like a general a new approach, but um, I found it really, really interesting. What about you? Well, for me, it was a very clear answer uh, about what my favorite interviews were that I conducted as far as my enjoyability went and my sort of own personal stake in things. Um, I got to sort of feed my love for psychedelic rock music into the lens of filmmaking, which was just like an awesome opportunity and something that's so great about working about this site is that you can just, you know, kind of if you find a means to do something, you can do it. And it was great to kind of do these retrospectives about um, two filmmakers in particular, Jason Galea and Matt Yoka, who I focused on because they have been collaborating with their musicians, their respective musicians for multiple videos and have sort of grown together with the music that is being put out. So it's very interesting to see sort of their filmmaking style evolve as the music of their counterpart is evolving. So you can check those out. I'm not going to go very into detail on those because um, they're great, but there's a lot of music videos in them. So you should go actually look at those articles and watch the music videos because they're awesome. And we'll link to those posts and all the posts that we're talking about um, in this week's podcast post. So what I will say was the most important interview for me this year, the interview where I sort of maybe learned the most about, um, like the business, I guess. Yeah. The business, the business, and also just like our, the way that journalism works was an interview I did with Kodak's president of motion picture and entertainment, Steve Bellamy. So it was my first year sort of acting as a journalist and interviewing people and This interview started off simple enough. A publicist reached out to me and asked if I wanted to interview Mr. Bellamy, and I leaped on it since I knew we had an audience that shared a wide appreciation for film. The interview itself was incredibly refreshing. Mr. Bellamy was incredibly candid and passionate on his plea for why film is the more artful medium for filmmakers. I was happy to have gotten such a clear and informative response from someone in such a high position of power. In short, he was being incredibly real with me, and we had almost an hour-long discussion full of some gems on the nature of filmmaking. And I mean, this is a guy who's been in the industry for... Since it essentially like the digital video industry, since essentially since it began, and has switched over to the filmmaking side of things as film has been declining in an effort to save it. And here I am, some writer for No Film School, and he was talking to me like an equal. So it was just great to have that sort of conversation with him. But perhaps our conversation got a little too real. Um, I was too actually real. yeah. I was actually at home in San Francisco for a week working from outside of the office and doing my civic duty and voting for the primaries when we dropped the interview and then boom, the thing really exploded, like really exploded. There are now 60 comments on the article, count them 6-0, which doesn't include the incredible array of things said on the Facebook post itself. And I say incredible because there you guys have some very active imaginations and some really good vocabulary for making fun of people. Um, there were some horrible things that were said. And I, you know, working in the internet for the past however many years, I'm used to that and know it's not a very big deal as far as, you know, trolling and such. But Steve took it a bit uh, harshly. 
Apparently, the publicist did something to confuse how the interview was going to take place, and he said some things that he didn't know would be repeated. And I argued that going in and editing might make things worse, but basically, I was on the phone with the president of Kodak at 3 a.m. on a Friday night after going to a psych rock concert in Oakland. Of course, the negative comments started to die down, and what we were left with was an absolutely stunning discussion on the merits of film within the context of our interview. While some people took offense to some of the implications Steve made about artistry and video versus film, ultimately what many of our community members decided is that no matter the art form, of course story comes first and the tool you should use is the one that best fits the story you're trying to tell. So while the interview itself is a great in that we're hearing from a man who is perhaps the most concerned man on the planet when it comes to saving film, we have an equally great discussion that's totally readable by our community on the merits of video. And while many said that the debate is dead, clearly... It's not. So the most educational thing I actually learned from Steve in our interview was that there's this fraternity of filmmakers you join when you shoot film. And that fraternity will kind of help you to position yourself in a place of success for your career. Let's hear him talk about it. So J.T. Moeller is one of 1,000 people this year that made a movie for under a million dollars. It was significant, yet there's only a handful that those guys, the big guys, really care to go see their movies. And it's because they're in the fraternity of film. So if if you're a, a young person who wants to get ahead in this industry, shoot on film. And because you're in the 5% as opposed to the 95%, but 90% of the greats all are in your 5%, you now have really jumped out of the masses and the clutter and gotten into the rare air. When you shoot film, I can't tell you what a fraternity you, you you have joined. It doesn't matter whether you're what level you are. If you're making a twenty-five thousand dollar movie or a twenty-five million or a five hundred million dollar movie, well, there's no, none of those, but two hundred million dollar movie, um, it's it across the board. I mean, we we are your partner. We are helping crew up your staff. We're helping raise money. We're um, making sure that the processing works great. We're introducing you to famous directors to come see your, to go to your premiere. It's just, it's amazing the value that you unlock when you shoot film because there's this, this niche of people who are just devoted to it. And they, I tell you, the older guys, Spielberg, Nolan, J.J., Tarantino, all those guys, they are just so enthusiastic about a young person who shoots film. So I will henceforth remember 2016 as the year that I met one of my personal filmmaking legends, um, Mr. Van Herzog. <laughs> great, great imitation, impersonation. <laughs> it was more like an opera theatrical. <laughs> um, my interview with Mr. Herzog started off on exactly the right foot when he said, no film school. I run my own film school, but I'm against film schools. So the self-professed most clinically sane filmmaker in the world, and that is a direct quote from Herzog, went on to discuss how he stopped his crew member from smuggling a drone into North Korea 
and how he and his crew experienced a near-death experience at the foot of a volcano that later killed seven people. By the way, I just have to interrupt to say that I saw his film, Into the Inferno, finally this past weekend, the one that you're referring to. And not only he, he doesn't actually say he's the most clinically insane filmmaker, he says in his wonderful accent, I am the only person in filmmaking who is clinically insane. Which is sane. Who, 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 sane. I am the only person in filmmaking who is clinically sane. Which like is cannot possibly be true, but he doesn't have that high of an ego. He I think he's I think he's totally self aware. he's the best. But I think he's totally not completely sane oh yeah well we did mention or he did mention flying cars and elvis in our interview i don't know how he managed to slip those in but it was amazing and he also talked about how important it was for him to basically reject journalism in favor of more poetic filmmaking so a quote from him from the interview he said when you look into the inferno it's far remote from journalism there's poetry in it needless to say meeting him was one of the highlights of my career on a similar note One of my other favorite posts of the year was one wherein I got to meet two of my cinematic heroes, um, which really is one of the, you know, perks of the job. Um, It also goes along with my theme of creative men with sexy accents from the Gianfranco Rosie interview. Oh, like Werner Herzog? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, So I had the great pleasure of going to a conversation between director Alfonso Cuaron and cinematographer Emmanuel Lubezki, better known as Chivo, who's the only DP to win three Oscars in a row. Um, These guys have collaborated on some of my all-time favorite films, including E2 Mama Tambien and Children of Men. And it was such a treat to hear them interviewing each other, actually, about their 30-plus year creative friendship. Um, One of the big takeaways I got from that conversation was that they only worked on E2 Mama Tambien after they had both done huge budget studio pictures um, with all the fixins. But this movie was, like, fully indie. It was shot with natural lighting and handheld cameras. And like many of us are still in the micro-budget or low-budget indie phase, and it can be such a rough road, but I liked knowing that these guys like came back there on purpose and it actually reinvigorated their whole creative practice. I got to know, is that like better known as Chivo three Oscars in a row? Is that like a mnemonic device that you use like <laughs> in your head? I wrote down the first letter <laughs> of every word in that sentence and memorized it. <laughs> So did you guys learn anything interesting about the kind of producing side of things in addition to the like creative um, front front facing stuff? Yeah, I actually embarked on a pretty in-depth research project about production incentives across the world. And originally, I just wanted to highlight maybe the 10 best production incentives and steer people towards more information elsewhere. But I wound up basically getting into maybe 50 or 60 different countries um, that I thought people should know about and their ability to shoot there. Um, So if you've ever thought about filming your movie in a foreign country, I'm very happy to report that there are more reasons to do it than just the exotic locales. And if you haven't thought about it, you should. And here's why. So in an effort to create jobs and stimulate local economies, many countries worldwide essentially pay productions to shoot within their borders. And you heard that right. They give you cold hard cash money. This comes in the form of tax incentives, cash rebates, um, production expenditure breaks, many different types of incentives. And 
While the incentives vary specifically from country to country, the end goal is completely universal. It's a symbiotic relationship between countries and foreign film productions. What do you mean by that exactly? Countries want to incentivize foreign film productions to come spend money in their local economy, give people jobs, um, buy things, and uh, basically just create um, some sort of financial hullabaloo. So basically, if you are trying to get your film made and figure out how to pay for it, we have this amazing resource on the site that Emily put together, which details production incentives offered by like, yeah, she said like 60 countries. Yeah. And some of those, based on my research, um, you should start thinking specifically about Colombia, which has a 60% cash rebate. So that means you get 60% of what you spend in Colombia on your budget back which is pretty incredible, more than half. And there's lots of serpents to embrace there. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we know. <laughs> and then there's Fiji, which gives a 50% cash rebate, and Canada, which are, is our friendly neighbor, that gives a 30 to 70% tax credit. Oh, yes, the exotic countries of Fiji, Colombia, and Canada. <laughs> <laughs> which one of those sounds most appealing? So we talked a lot about all the great things that we were interested in and excited about and learned about from this past year. And uh, now we're sort of thinking ahead. I'm going to ask these guys about what uh, what they're most looking forward to, but I'll kick it off. Um, before I came to No Film School, I was covering transmedia and new media for POV, including virtual reality. And I kept up that beat here. Um, so like I always go out of my way to check out the new VR and cross-media storytelling experiments at all the festivals and, and other venues that I can. And it's been really interesting this year that 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 term transmedia already feels like an outdated term like it's just media now and vr is kind of a subset of all of that and it's really starting to like this year i would say more than any other year started to tap into the mainstream consciousness with like a the proliferation of devices like the samsung vr gear headset which is just like advertised on regular television now but the thing is in my opinion that the content and the projects available just aren't quite there yet in terms of quality storytelling it's more still in the like ooh cool vr phase like i feel like i'm on a plane or something but not um this kind of like rich storytelling I did see some amazing examples this year um, that I wrote about on the site, like Six by Nine from The Guardian, which makes you feel like you're in solitary confinement, um, and The Turning Forest, an animated piece by Oscar Rabbi, and also some of Ben C. Solomon's VR reporting for The New York Times was really amazing. But I guess my hope for next year is that things are sort of elevated to a new level in terms of virtual reality filmmaking. And actually, with the upcoming VR lineup at Sundance for 2017, it looks really, really promising. Emily, what about you? Um, I'm personally feeling very hopeful, that, which is a new word for the vocabulary of, I think, the end of this year for all of us, uh, for many of us. Um, I feel like the success of Moonlight really is a harbinger of many good things to come. Um, I remember when Beasts of the Southern Wild came out and everybody I knew saw it. Um, at the time, I was friends with a lot of people who actually weren't big independent film watchers. And I was so happy that for the first time in my life, everybody in my peripheral social circle was talking about this one movie that was amazing that I loved. And it actually made money at the box office. And this is the second time that's happened. And it happened with such an unlikely contender, a film about a gay black man growing up in South Central Miami. And it doesn't have a lot of dialogue, very unusual for um, high grossing movies. It's it's 
kind of experimental in its approach to cinematography. And um, it doesn't have a regular story structure either. So in many ways, it kind of defied all of the odds against it. And I really hope that it gives more filmmakers license to take really big risks like that in the coming years. John Fusco? Well... I'm excited for the growth of No Film School next year, most of anything. So what I'm hoping to see, as I'm sure many of you are hoping to see, are videos. Like moving pictures? Like moving pictures. Could be interesting. Maybe even some educational videos. Like talking, learning, moving pictures? Like talking, learning, moving pictures. Talkies. And improvements for the boards. I know that's a big thing that everybody's wanting, and... You know, I can't guarantee it, but I'll say we're working on it, and it'll happen eventually. We are paying attention <laughs> to your requests, guys. Also, duh, more podcasts, hopefully a wider variety of podcasts. We've been doing a lot more interviews lately, so I hope you guys have been enjoying those. Um, we still need a tech editor, which I thought I'd mention. Uh, if you're listening and you think you could do a good job at that, then... Email editor at nofilmschool.com. There you go. And finally, what I'm personally excited for in the upcoming months is Sundance again. So excited about Sundance. Yeah. Somehow I'm now the vet at Sundance and last year I was the noob. It's going to make your experience here full circle. So if you see us at Sundance and you like the show, come say hi. And give me a high five because I like (laughs) high fives. So before next year rolls around... Uh, we will be posting about 20 year-end posts with elaborations on what you heard in this episode and much more, including, as Charles mentioned, you know, our top choices for grip, our top choices for post, best innovations in droning, the year's most intriguing characters, boldest cinematic risks. Uh, one of the first to go up is already live on the site. It was the seven best shots of 2017 by Greg Swick. Emily, you edited that. I did. Um I think that number one was the most interesting. Greg actually highlighted a 41-minute long take from a film called Kaylee Blues. Not a lot of people saw that movie. It hasn't really been distributed widely yet. Um, But apparently when they were shooting it, the cinematographer just left the camera on while riding on the back of a motorcycle and never turned it off. And they have a 41-minute long take of uh, different denizens of this small town. Um, And apparently it's just incredibly great for the narrative. Greg wrote, quote, all of the narrative fragments coalesce like a shattered teacup repairing itself, which I thought was very beautiful. Ooh. Um, Other shots that he mentioned on his list were the underwater dog shot from Knight of Cups, which is another personal favorite of mine. (laughs) That certain shot in The Lobster where Rachel Weisz's character is waiting in the diner booth for Colin Farrell's character to emerge from the bathroom. And we don't know yet whether or not he's gone through with or chickened out on his gory task of self-mutilation. That is a very loaded shot. Um, And then there's that harrowing scene in Neon Demon when Elle Fanning's character overhears a murder in her hotel room next door. And about this, Greg wrote, quote, her head and hand are shrouded in silhouette as the camera zooms out impossibly far, hearkening back to a similar optical illusion in Michael Mann's The Keep. Again, we'll link to all of those on this week's podcast post. And since it's the last episode of the year, usually every week we we go over in detail uh, the indie film releases of the week. Now we've got basically a couple weeks till the end of the year, till the next show, and a whole ton of great indies are coming out. So I'm not going to go into detail, but I will list them. We have 
posts about every single one because we've been so on top of our game this year. So we'll link to those in the podcast post. And uh, I'm just going to quickly mention the list so that you know what you should go out and see during your holiday break. On December 21st, Pedro Almodovar's Juliet is coming out. December 23rd, Ken Loach's I, Daniel Blake. Also on the 23rd, A Monster Calls by J.A. Bayona, who was interviewed along with his lead actor and writer on this past Monday's interview, No Film School interview podcast. Yeah. Nice job, John. Jim, John, Jim, 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 Jim. Also on the 23rd is finally the release of the movie Martin Scorsese has been trying to get made for 27 years, Silence. On Christmas, Fences is coming out, which Denzel Washington directed and stars in. Tony Erdman, Maren Ada's award-winning film. And finally on December 28th, Jim Jarmusch's Patterson and Mike Mills's 20, 20th Century Women. Which are both great films to see with your, your family, by the way. Which are both great films to see with your family, by the way. Especially if there are 20th century women in your family or some guy named Patterson. So while we won't have any more Indie Film Weeklies this year, cry everybody, cry. Um, But don't worry, we'll be back the first week in January. And we will, in the meantime, have an extra episode of our interview podcast in place of Indie Film Weekly next Thursday. Yes, and that interview will be between myself and major motion picture director Justin Kurzel, who just released a little movie called Assassin's Creed, which is actually a very big movie. And we talk a lot about his jump from making very small movies to making very big movies. What did he make before that was small? He made Macbeth and he made this movie called The Snowtown Murders. Oh, I saw The Snowtown Murders. I made my roommate watch that with me and then tell me what happened because it was so gory. Well, for for a little bit of a taste, he made The Snowtown Murders for $2 million. He made Macbeth for $15 million. And he made Assassin's Creed with a budget of $130 million. So that was a... I call that growth. Pretty large jumps. Jumpski. And I really just think it's hilarious that basically our Christmas episode is about Assassin's Creed. It's great. Just in time for the holidays and your families. And So, as always, you can read about everything we talked about and more about the craft of filmmaking on nofilmschool.com. You can subscribe to this show and rate us on iTunes, which, by the way, I want to mention, um, thank you guys all so much for your feedback and your support on iTunes and on Twitter and beyond. It was our first year of Indie Film Weekly. We put out more than 40 episodes and we really um, thrive on your your feedback. So on that note, definitely, as mentioned, subscribe, rate us on iTunes, stay in touch on Twitter. I'm at Liz Film. I'm at Yell Booter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John Jim Jim Jim. I thought I was going to get you guys. Finally. And Charles, who had to step out for a holiday party, is at Charles Hain. Of course, we're all at No Film School. So, until the first week of January, happy holidays and see you next year. And spend money at the box office. Support your fellow people. 